listening to The Rick Z Show. I'm your host, Rick Z, and we're coming to you from the Clubhouse Studios here in beautiful downtown Rhinebeck, right in the heart of the Hudson Valley. And boy, do we have a guest for you today. It is our privilege and our honor to have a great songwriter with us, with a wonderful voice, all sorts of stuff to talk about. I'm talking about Donna Lewis. Donna, welcome to The Rick Z Show. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to With have you masks. on the show. With our masks <laughs> We're on. We're probably suffocating. You know what? Yes. It doesn't matter to me. I'm just happy that you're here. <laughs> and we have a lot to talk about, so let's just jump into it. Sure. Let's go way back to where you were born. You were born in Cardiff, Wales. Wales, that's right. I'm a Welsh, you're a Welsh, Welsh girl, yes. What was it like, I'm presuming that when you kind of came of age and became a musician or, or started to to really develop yourself as a musician. It was probably the, the 1980s, I, I'm just guessing, is somewhere in there. W what was it like in Wales at that time for music? Were there a lot of Welsh bands? Did you listen to mostly American music? What was it like? I mean, I really did listen to um, a lot of American music, I have to say. But, um, you know, I think growing up in Wales, the nice thing about that was, um, you know, every year in school, there were all the always these Eisteddfods and festivals song festivals, poetry festivals. So we really grew up with a lot of music and a lot of art, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so I kind of started young writing when I was in school. I had my little band and we used to write songs for these various festivals. And um, that was my first um, intro into sort of creating music, I would say. And then, you know, at the time, I suppose I really can't say I listened to any Welsh bands. I think we were, how can I say this? I'm very proud to be Welsh, but none of us really were interested in speaking Welsh. And I, I suppose I was just interested in David Bowie, Elton John, T-Rex, those kind of artists. And then a lot of like American Motown um, artists that kind of thing. I was into Elvis Presley. So I can't really say there was one Welsh act that I would listen to at the time. Really? So it was mostly British bands it and really American? It really was, yeah. I mean, there were there were always good local bands in Cardiff. Pino Palladino, you know, the famous bass player. Sure. I remember going out to see him and his band. But Incredible, fretless yeah. player. Yeah, oh, amazing. Him and Tony Franklin, I would say, uh, like the best. But yeah, it was a lot of British American bands and singer-songwriters that I would listen to. Now there's music in your family. You were raised around music. Your father was a jazz musician, right? Yeah. Not professionally, right? But that's right, amateur. I mean, so you know, I think if he'd have, if he'd have been able to, he would have loved to have gone to college to study music. But that wasn't the case for him. So he learned by ear, and then he always played in like jazz outfits played a lot of jazz guitar with his another friend you know loved all the Django Reinhardt stuff Joe Pass mm. that kind of jazz and so I really grew up listening to a, a lot of a lot of jazz a lot of acoustic jazz yes acoustic of guitar stuff yes and then a lot of you know singers you know Ella Fitzgerald Sarah Vaughan you know and and then the big band stuff Frank Sinatra so there was always that kind of music going on in our house all the time. Was it your dad, you would say, that fostered that love of jazz? Yes, definitely, definitely. And you were very young when you started to play piano. You were only six years old. I was only six and um, loved it, wanted to learn. It was, it was so interesting. Um, I started out with a 
uh, my next door neighbor who was a piano teacher at the time and then when I got better I went to another woman and I remember taking a jazz piece that a piece of sheet music that my dad and I would play together and I took that to my lesson one day and she flipped like it was oh my god why did you bring this to me you cannot learn music like that it was so interesting mm, um, not into jazz whatsoever so I left and I think it put me off learning classical music for a while I, I really took a few years off from it and then I started again when I was about 11 or 12 with a great piano teacher and then my love for that grew again it's interesting back then they they were not as supportive of anything but these, these structured lessons I took lessons I mean some people were of course but I took lessons from a, a very good musician but I, I wanted to learn uh, rock and roll songs I, I didn't want to play you know lemon tree and go tell it on the mountain every time yes. I, you know, all these folk songs but you had to get through that book you know that they, they wouldn't have it they, they wouldn't teach rock and roll yes yeah that's why I love you know my son who's 17 now um, he's had a great piano teacher for a long long time and I love it that you know, he's learned all the classics and everything, but she's always open to anything else, whether you're writing original music, jazz. Now there's a teacher. Exactly. And I think it's everything to have a teacher like that. Uh, I think so, too. I, I used to like to write songs, and I would, br even though I was a young kid, I would bring them in to show them proudly, and, and he, he didn't want to hear them. Yeah, you know, yeah, it's, it's a shame. Well, eventually, as you got older, you ended up going off to college. You went to the Royal Welsh College for Drama and Music. Music and Drama, yeah. I didn't do any of the drama, but yeah, it, I did the music, yeah. And you studied classical music there. Yes. Piano and flute. Piano and flute. And I remember going in, and piano was going to be my main instrument, flute second. And then I got there, and then I heard all these incredible virtuoso pianists, and I thought, oh, my God. I, I, I'm just like, so I switched, <laughs> I, 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 I made flute my main instrument and piano second because um, they were too good. And I think we, we realize, you know, when you go in, when you see the performance side of classical music, you've got to be so good oh, to yeah. sort of make it in that field and so many hours and hours of practice. So. But the, the great thing about my college, we did a lot of music and education work, and they were also open to original music. So we had lots of composition, and they had a little recording studio there, and we would do that. So, th you know, it was, it was quite varied. It was a pretty good course. You ever break out the flute nowadays? You know, I have done on a few occasions, did a, a couple of flute and clarinet duets with my son, but it's been, it's probably been about, a year since I picked no, maybe less than that, but nine months since I last picked it up. Well, that's not bad. But not over bad. the years, you, you've picked yes. it up. Yes. So you learned classical discipline, you learned jazz discipline. In a way, they're kind of opposites. One's improvisational, one's very structured. Yeah. Where are you? Somewhere in the middle? You know, it, with improvisation, it was interesting. I could not improvise easily on the flute when you think about jazz like I I would have to sing I would I would be fine improvising singing so I if, if I if I did any of the jazz on the flute I would work out the solo as a singer it's so interesting and then I would be able to play it on the flute I could never do that it's just so weird and I don't know I, I think it's something maybe that um, uh, you can learn to a certain extent but I think you have to have that 
natural talent. You know, when you look at the great jazz, the greats, you know, it just comes from their brain to their fingers. Do you know what I mean? It's mm -hmm. just, they make it look easy. And I think for me, I was kind of neither, you know, I love classical, I love jazz, but I think what I loved more than anything was, was doing my original compositions. That was my, my thing that I... You were a songwriter. Yes, exactly. Didn't realize it, you know, in the very early days, but uh, yeah, it was definitely by the time I got to college, I thought this is really what I would like to do. Did you graduate from that college? I did. And so you um, have a degree in music. Yes, and then I went on to um, do a teacher's training in a college in Sussex. You know, there's great experience being in a classroom, teaching music to kids. But I, I think during that whole time, I was always singing with bands. And I just felt when I left college, I came back to Cardiff, actually. And then I joined um, like a 10-piece cabaret band we used to do all the um you know the, if the queen did any functions at cardiff city hall any rugby events that happened we always played at those really? events it was it was a great it was a great band you know a big 10-piece band three singers brass section that was really good for me to do and at the same time then i had like about 25 private flute pupils i used to teach at home so I decided I just didn't want to go into school at that time. I kind of wanted to be on stage singing and then to earn a bit of extra money, I would teach too. Were you playing any of your original material live at this time? Not with, not with that band. Well, not with that band. No, but then after that, I moved to Birmingham and I got a little piano bar gig. It's a little place called the Earls of Warwick in Warwick. It was my first time doing just piano vocal, just me. And I found that, okay, here I can do really interesting songs like Ricky Lee Jones, Kate Bush, you know, Elton John. I can do a bunch of some of these singer-songwriter songs. I hear all I of those people in your style, all of them. Oh, yeah, yeah. You, c you, c you can see, yes, I was heavily influenced by those guys. And then I would sneak in one of my own songs yeah. during the night and I just felt that was really where I was heading next and I used to do a lot of European piano work I worked a lot in Sweden and Finland and all sorts of places how long before you came to the US permanently like late 80s doing some of the piano bars and then we came to the US in 94 because now in a minute wasn't released till 96 so yeah 94 was when we came over here now you were signed to atlantic almost right away after you got here though correct yes you know it's interesting when i first came to new york and i did a little showcase which was kind of um sad because it was pouring with rain that night and i think we had two labels show up <laughs> and it was so depressing and harvey jones our really good friend was living in woodstock at the time and he was working with Robbie Dupree and uh, he said why don't you come up for the weekend to Woodstock and I think that's how it all started where I played Robbie some of my songs he loved it and then through various people in Woodstock it got to an A&R person at Atlantic when I went back to Birmingham then I was still working at the um, piano bar at the the Bel Air Hotel in Birmingham and that's when I received the call from Jason Flom at Atlantic come over and 
audition. Uh, well, not audition. Come over and play for Dirk Morris in his office, and let's do something together. That's you know, exciting. It was. That had, <laughs> had to be a revelation. It was like a kind of a fairy tale. I mean, you know, I've been. I had been doing piano bars for years and years, trying to get someone with my own material, and then suddenly, out of the blue. Jason Flom calls from Atlantic and it was interesting you know he said oh my god we love this song I love you always forever we've heard your other songs we want to do a record and I I suppose it was just being so realistic I thought okay let's not get my hopes up um and I had to play for Doug Morris in his office and before I sat down to play he said by the way I just want to tell you that Elton John's played this piano, Tori Amos has played this piano, and I'm thinking, <laughs> Jesus. No pressure. Oh, yeah, no <laughs> pressure. Um, but I did a couple of songs, and it, was, it really was one of those fairy tale moments where, congratulations, we'd like to offer you a deal, and uh, who do you fancy producing? Trevor Horn, Steve Lipson? I'm thinking, oh, my God. Horn Let's and see. Lipson? They offered you Horn and Lipson? Yes. Wow. I met both of them, yes. They did the, what, Frankie Goes to Hollywood stuff? Yeah. I mean, and and of course, Lipson was in the middle of doing Annie Lennox's Diva. I think that was, he was in the middle of doing that album. Yeah, I think he had just finished Flowers in the Dirt for Paul McCartney. Yes. Yeah, so it was amazing um, to kind of meet those guys. But, you know, it just didn't, you know, he was in the middle of doing that thing with Annie. I think Trevor Horn was doing the Seal thing. And so I ended up working with Pierre Marchand, who produced Sarah McLaughlin's records who we met and the album you know I flew to Canada to work with him it was a little bit of a tough one because here's the thing you know I had done all these recorded all these demos myself for the record and then Atlantic just felt they should should just be embellished and I got to Pierre's and of course I think he just wanted to strip everything which I suppose a producer likes to do but he was very adamant about he didn't like the way I Love You Always Forever sounded, and he just wanted to sort of start all over again. It's just started to take a long, long time. And there were a couple of things, it just, it, it was it was a really hard time, those few months. And we all got together, and I was very lucky in a way, because it was just taking, I don't think, I probably would have been there for two years making this record, and in the end, Jason came over and said, let's find somebody else to do this record with and um that's when i met kevin killen you know so I, I i almost felt i made the record three times wow wow and it wasn't really officially released until 96 right that's right and even then you know it's interesting isn't it because you you have all these dreams and you think oh my gosh you know i, I get i got the record deal of my dreams and then now we're going to make it and you think this is all going to be wonderful and it's not always the case it's a lot of hurry up and wait yeah and i think as a woman i just felt i i think you know when you look back at that experience you realize i didn't really have a voice i i think at the first time round, atlantic were very supportive but i think working with pierre he he didn't want me to use my voice in decisions on the record and i think that was the hardest thing mm. but it was a good learning exercise for me and I, then i think you know when i was working with kevin we produced it together and it was in New York. It was, that's how I met Jerry Leonard. 
you know what I mean? And I, I could have, and I've said this before, I don't talk too much about the first, the making of the first record, but um, I remember Pierre saying to me, you cannot use fretless bass, I hate it. And of course, Tony Franklin is an amazing fretless bass player. I've sure. been friends with him forever. And I wanted to use him, but I, I wasn't allowed to. So working with Kevin in New York, it was amazing. I met Jerry, I, I had Tony Franklin play on it. I had um, Harvey Jones, my longtime friend, play on keyboards. So, you know, it was, you know, great actually doing it for the third well, time. Well, I'm sure it was worth the wait because it spawned an enormous successful hit for you called I Love You Always and Forever. That's right. And, I mean, you still hear that all the time, everywhere. I mean, that song is a classic now. It, that, that song is going to be around forever. I mean, I that's, hope so. uh, that's extraordinary. You know, I wonder about the writing of the song, because uh, I saw a YouTube version of it live that you had done, just played on acoustic piano, and it gives you the real sense of how cool that chord progression is and, and how important it is if you want a pop song, you're going to have a really great chord progression, and that's a killer chord progression. Did you know when you wrote it that you had something? I know it's fascinating, isn't it? You wonder sometimes, but I, I have to say I actually did. It was an interesting thing. I was walking around the streets of Birmingham and I actually wrote the opening, the feels like I'm standing in a townlessness. I actually wrote the whole melody of that in my head. I was imagining, well, what m must it be like to be on stage and you start singing a song and everybody knows it? And so I remember getting to my husband's office and I, I wrote the notes down so I didn't forget it. <laughs> and I came home and it was just one of those things. I, it was just, I, I don't know how it all came together very quickly. I had a Korg M1 and a little Alesis, what was it, a, an M MMT8. It was like a little sort of um, sequencer. And I literally just, and I had a little eight track Porter Studio. So... The whole thing, I think it was a pretty new Korg M1 at the time and I was inspired by all these cool sounds and it just came together very, very quickly and as I, I, I really, honestly, it came together so fast. I'm playing it and I'm thinking, wow, this is, I, I did think it had something special but also I felt the lyrics were so cheesy on the chorus. I was trying to make them, you know, more clever and see what I could do to change it, but nothing worked. Mm. Well, the great singing keeps it from sounding corny, <laughs> believe me. <laughs> I know. It really makes a big difference. And I was experimenting at the time with layering up my voice, you know, and uh, as you, you know, on the, on the old Porter studios, you would have to make um, a commitment to, okay, I put a rough lead vocal down, then I would, I wanted to layer up my vocals, and so I would do a bunch of tracks, then bounce them onto one track, then do another load of tracks, bounce them onto another track. So that was the demo. The funny thing is that was the demo that Atlantic heard. And it just goes to show how you don't have enough confidence in yourself because even though I knew that song had something special, I don't know where it came from, but I think it, it had something. I think I demoed it again with two other people thinking that mine isn't good enough to send off anywhere but it was the demo that got jen stark fired up you know at, at atlantic and um it was that little demo of mine which in fact became the one for the record as well well special it is so special that it climbed all the way up the charts to number two on the hot 
100, and that was a record-breaking nine weeks that it spent there. In fact, it beat the previous Welsh artist record. I believe it was Bonnie Tyler, probably uh, Total, eclipse, cli- of total eclipse of the Heart, which it w- is a- another enormous hit. To beat that Amazing. one has got to be tough, but you yes. did it. And then it went number one on the top 40 as well. Yes. I mean, that that's pretty extraordinary. Has anyone broken that record, any Welsh artist broken that record since then, as far as you know? I'm not sure. I don't think so. I mean, I know there's been a, a couple of like really big bands that have come out of Wales since then, but I'm I I really don't know. I mean, it just I think with that song, I think it was very much a radio song, wasn't it? I I, I think it was just it just you know everything's about timing, and I just feel that song was released in May. It's this charming little song. There's you know I don't know. I keep saying there's nothing special about it, but I. It must have resonated with people, and it was it was very much like a radio song people would listen to in their cars. And I just think, um, yeah, it's it's amazing. A great pop song is very elastic. It, it can be used so many different ways. You can do different mixes. I notice you have lots of versions of the song. In 2008, on your In the Pink album, you have a version. I actually can't tell the difference between that version and the one on now in a minute. Yeah, well, we wanted to do our own master. As you know, for every writer and artist, it would be nice to own your own masters of your songs. Mm-hmm. We just thought, let's do it. And in fact, I came here, I recorded it here at the clubhouse, came with Jerry, and we got my, my M1 and all my old stuff back out. And we really did uh, spend a bit of time and recreated it as much as possible. You can tell, like, Jerry's little atmospheric guitars are a little different yeah my piano is probably a little different at the end you know there's some different there's some subtle differences but yeah we wanted to try and capture the essence of the song and we got kevin killen to mix it as well so we we had all the the usual people in some other not so subtle uh, versions of it that are wonderful like the jazz version you do on your album brand new day which we'll be talking about yeah so many different ones i saw one from 2020 i think it's just an acoustic live video on youtube of you playing the song very recently and it's very gospely i mean especially in the chorus i mean the way you're modulating using these bass notes it's it's a very soulful gospely version of it 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 is quite gospelly actually. I it would you could play really classical and jazz and gospel. You you can <laughs> you've got many styles, many styles. I just need like a gospel choir now to do it sure. justice. Um, yeah, you know, and it's funny when I would do an acoustic version of that song, I had to do it differently because it just didn't sound right doing the chorus the mm-hmm. same as the the song on the, on the album so i had to change it around a bit just to fit the way i could sing it because it's not it's not easy to do that so that's why it sounds a little bit more sort of maybe bluesy and gospely yeah. have you ever heard the philly mix of it oh my gosh yes King i Brit love that did yes that is fantastic it, the bass comes in and changes everything the bass underneath it all and that hip-hop beat and it kind of kind of reminds me of like a Bill Withers groove, you know? Yes. Yeah, King Brit, he did an amazing job with that. Got like, you know, live people in to play. And um, I was really surprised and delighted in what he came up with, you know. Because those are the days back in, you know, the early 90s where the remixes were starting to get noticed. And 
you never know what they're going to do. But he did a really great job with that. He certainly and that did. became really successful. I think when everybody was sick of the pop one, that really had a bit of a life. Um, it was a great punch up of the tune. Yes, yes. Absolutely. It's a long title, I Love You Always and Forever. There's uh, no and in it, yeah, but oh, I, lo yeah, sorry. I love you always forever. I love you always forever. Right. You know, originally because... I'm I just making it longer, sorry. <laughs> sorry. That's all right. <laughs> um, because, you know, I, I originally called it Lydia because I was reading this H.E. Bates novel called Lydia, and I titled it that, and I remember somebody at Atlantic saying, listen, Donna... When people hear the song and they want to hear it, they're going to say, can you play that song? It goes, I love you always forever. And if it's called Lydia, they won't, they'll be totally confused. So I think you should change it. I was hesitant to change it, but I suppose I'm probably the best thing I did to change the title. Well, and nowadays you, you have uh, pop music where you never guess the title. Yes. You know, the title is opposite of whatever they're saying yes. in the chorus. It, it almost doesn't matter anymore. It doesn't matter. So many things have changed, but I suppose, you know, looking back you always want to do the right thing i mean that's the, the hard thing of you know when you first sign to a company like atlantic and i'm thinking all right maybe that's what i should do then i should change the title and mm -hmm. uh, it made a lot of sense at the time i mean it's not so much the same but that's how radio was isn't it you know you'd ring in and say can you play this song, I don't know what the title is, but it goes like this, mm -hmm. and yeah. Especially back then, I mean, music was different, the business was different, it was all different. It's, is it hard to believe it's been almost 25 years? It's crazy, I can't it really is. believe it. I mean, um, we're just working on doing a, a few special things next year for its anniversary, because, you know, on the one hand, it's it's amazing, I love you always, forever. I'm saying I love you always and forever now. Sorry, you, uh, that's it's okay. I, I did that to you. <laughs> that's my oh, fault. No. Um, <laughs> I love it. It's been so successful. But of course, it just takes... You don't really notice some of the other songs on the record. And there's some... You know, I, I don't listen a lot to my own music after I've recorded it. You know, somebody pointed it out to me a few months ago. Wow, you know, you've got Fool's Paradise. You've got Lights of Life. You've got Nothing Ever Changes some of the stuff there is really great so we're going to do a few cool things next year when it's the anniversary but yeah when you play i love you always forever and you're on stage with your musicians do you have a shorthand do you just say hey guys let's play always you know uh, musicians do that all the time with their songs they have like a shorthand with with their their fellow it's musicians. normally like yeah eliaf so it's i-l-y-a-f and so it's um oh yeah we oh, that's interesting. EDF, yes. Are you aware that Taylor Swift is a big fan of the song? I know. I was. I was quite um, pleased about that. I she said she was influenced by the song, and you know what? I, I know it's only one song, but I think I can hear the influence. <laughs> I, I think <laughs> yeah. I can hear it. I no, think I can it's hear cool. I mean, it does amaze me. It's like Lennon Stella. I was. Um, you know, she went in the studio to cut one of her tracks, and she started singing feels like and then she came out and thought oh my god that sounds like i love you always forever <laughs> oh what are we gonna do and um that's happened to me before actually writing the song i could be the one on on blue planet and i anyway so she went back in and then they thought okay let's do a version of it and then they put like the chorus at the end i, th I think that's like she did a really cool version but it's amazing seeing these young people 
really, um, you know, have this affinity to this. A song. great song is timeless, though, and that's why I think it's been around for 25 years and probably for another 25. And who knows? It, it'll be in a, some time capsule someday. Maybe yes. Is having a big hit like that a blessing and a curse? Both. Uh, I only ask this because I saw this great documentary on the making of your album, Brand New Day. Yeah. And you were talking about how it may be misleading to the diversity of your songwriting because people hear this huge hit they associate you with it and think that you only write pop songs when you do so much more it is it, it is a blessing and a curse as you say you know i'm grateful i i think i wrote um a cool little song and i'm so glad it's had this life it's had but at the same time it's like people don't really know that i'm more i think i am much more than that as a writer so it is tricky and in the early days it was um atlantic wanted to put me out on tour with everything but the girl tour america and then my managers at the time said you know because i love you always forever has this international appeal let's look at that first before we do any of that now when you look back you think it might have been better for me to have done that do you know what i mean yeah. Go out on tour with those guys because they were amazing I might have had like a really different kind of fan base. Who knows? You know, you just go with the flow, don't you? But you ever get tired of playing it? I don't. I used to think I would, but I have to say every time I play it, I just have to open my mouth on the first line of the song and people just love it. So I just love the way it makes people feel when I play it, even when we do the dark jazz version you know is that why you have so many different incarnations of the song it's just to keep it interesting for you i never planned it you know when we were making brand new day here with david torn and someone suggested how about doing a cover of i love you is forever and i said oh no you know it's already we've done it on in the pink we did a, uh, another version and i kind of didn't want to do it because i thought i don't want people thinking every record i do now I'm gonna add this song. I, I kind of wanted to get away from it, but I have to say they were thinking, look, it's a covers record. Let's just do a version and see what it was like. And of course I had those guys, Dave King, Reed Anderson and Ethan play a, an amazing version of it. And it does keep it fresh, I have to say. And then doing an acoustic version don't know what else I would do with it. That's it. Who, who's the person with the blue eyes that you refer to in the song? Is that a real person? Can, can you not say or can you say? It's probably somebody in my teenage years, but my husband wasn't very happy because he's got brown eyes. Oh, no. Yeah, but um, oh. he, underst he, he understands. He understands. <laughs> that was then, this is now. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Feels like I'm standing on the top. Discovery 
You've been listening to The Rick Z Show. I'm your host, Rick Z, and don't forget to come back next week for part two of our interview with Donna Lewis. <laughs>